Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. So we're continuing on our series called Under the Influence, and we're studying the book of Colossians. And uh, the reason why we call it Under the Influence is because in this book, um, Paul, who is the author of this letter, he's sending it to the church there, and he says, hey, you're starting to come under the influence of some of the things that are happening within culture. You're starting to allow it to come into the church and starting to shape the way that you think and that you live. And so last week, what we did was we talked about these deceptive philosophies that Paul was warning about. And some of the the philosophies of our day and some of the things that we might get sucked into. And if you weren't here, you should go back and watch that because it was a fun message. (laughs) I got a lot of emails this week, like more emails than I've gotten in a long time. Not all positive, but people were paying attention. So go ahead and check that. But it was about deceptive philosophies and, and then what it looks like to give our lives over to Christ. And then the phrase that we looked at was to be in Christ. And so we kind of put together this illustration of Russian dolls and Christ is in you and you are in Christ and what exactly that means. And, and so um, go back and watch that if you weren't here, because it's going to make some sense. But the, the bottom line was when you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you are united with him. And I'll, I'll elaborate on that in a moment. So today we're going to go into chapter three. And in chapter three, Paul takes a bit of a turn. So he goes from this theological picture of who Jesus is, and then he starts talking more about the practical applications in our lives as people who follow Jesus. So we'll jump in chapter three if you have your uh, Bibles, Bible app. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on where, uh, excuse me, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. So this gives you a little glimpse into what's happening within the rest of the chapter. He goes on and he lists more things that you should and you shouldn't do. And, and if you're not a Bible person or you open and you start to read along, you're going to go... Yeah, see, this is, this is why I don't read the Bible, because this is just a bunch of things that I should and shouldn't do, half of which I already know. Like, these are not new things. I already knew I shouldn't do these things, and I should do these other things. And you might, if, you, uh, if you're a Christian, you might go, okay, I'm just going to really try my hardest to do the right things and then avoid the doing these wrong things. And eventually, um, you're going to realize that you can't do it. You're going to fail at it. And you might be frustrated. You might even quit. And you're going to say, look, this is just a bunch of rules. I can't, I can't do this. I'm going to give you a little insight into how to read the scriptures. Because when you read the Bible and you see like a list of to do's and don'ts, things like this, um, you have to realize that they are tied to something. And so I'm going to give you two phrases for you to remember. Imperative and indicative. So imperative is something that you do. It's a commandment. Here's what you should do. Here's what you should not do. But then you have an indicative. This is who. Who you are because of your relationship with God. And so whenever you have a list of imperatives like this, things that you should do, it's always connected to indicatives, things that are true of you now that you are a Christ follower. And and it's an important distinction. It's actually the thing that uh, defines Christianity versus all other religions. Because all other religions say, look, do these things, and then this is who you're going to become, someone who is acceptable to God or going to go to heaven or whatever. But Christianity is the reverse. It says, here's who you are, so now go and act like it. 
This is, this is who you are in Christ, so go and act like it. So, for example, um, growing up, I uh, would sometimes get into conflict with my parents or my sister, very difficult people to get along with. And, and as we would try to resolve the conflict that we were in, my dad would say something like this. Hey, that's not the kind of family that we are. He would say, here's the kind of family that we are. We're people who love Jesus, and therefore, because we love Jesus, we, were, we forgive and we respect each other. And we were. What he was saying was, here's our identity, and then because of who we are, this is how we act. Now, what he didn't say was, here's how we act if you want to be a part of this family. Like, I was never at risk of, if I didn't act a certain way, he's going to go, well, you're not my son anymore. <laughs> you're just not mine anymore, right? Because my son wouldn't act like that, so then you're not my son. No, it was always, here's who we are, and so here's how we're going to act. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And he says it throughout the scriptures as, here's who you are, and so here's how you should act. There's always an indicative and an imperative, and they're coming, and they're connected t- together. So let's look at it through that lens. Let's look at this piece of scripture through that lens, which is um, the indicative and the imperative. Who am I, and what am I, and how am I supposed to live? So, indicative. Who does this say that I am? Well, Paul makes a bunch of statements. He says, you have been raised with Christ, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, and this is important, who is your life. So it says, at the core of who you are, Christ. Remember, it's because Christ is in you, and you are in Christ. Um, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So here's the basic idea, and you see this throughout the scriptures, is when you are in Christ and Christ is in you, what is true about him is now true about you. And what was true about you became true about him. And so when he was put on the cross, it was for your sins. But when he resurrected and he conquered sin and death, that, was actually, that became true of you, that you now became forgiven, that now you have conquered sin and death. And it says when Christ returns in glory to rule in the reign, then you will be with him as well. And so when you think about who you are, you, if you are a follower of Christ, if you have given your life to him, everything that is true of Jesus is now true of you. And so that's where Paul begins with, this is your identity, that you were made um, by God, chosen by him, loved, redeemed, forgiven, set free, made into a new creation, an heir, a child of the king, and a citizen of heaven. And so that's your identity. That's who you are at your core. Now, as I read off all of those things that the scriptures say that you are, for many of us, these are not new things. We've heard these before, but maybe it was new for you. Are you all of a sudden transformed into a new person? Like all of a sudden you go, I am, I am. Wow, that's great. Like I'm, I, I don't even have to worry anymore. I have no insecurities anymore. Like that's amazing. I am totally a different person. Now you may believe that that is true that you've been made into a new person, but do you experience that life as a new person? Like, do you feel like that's who you are? No, because there's a disconnect there. That just because we have a knowledge of something doesn't mean that it all of a sudden has the ability to transform us. Like, I have a lot of knowledge about, I don't know, how to eat healthy and exercise. I can, I can tell you all the things that need to happen. I know. I still don't have a six-pack. You know Why? Because knowledge isn't enough. There's got to be something else that takes place, right? I actually have to exercise. I actually have to do these things in order to experience transformation. So this is where Paul comes in with the imperatives. He says, okay, it's not enough to just simply know, but you actually have to do. You're going to have to live out this new identity. Well, how do we live out this new identity? First thing he says is, well, set your hearts on things above. Then he says, set your mind on things above. 
And I think Paul is making a distinction here between hearts and minds, and I think the order in which he lists them is important. I don't think it's accidental. I read a book um, recently by a philosopher and theologian named James K. Smith called You Are What You Love. And in it, he argues that ever since Descartes declared, I think, therefore I am, we have primarily seen ourselves as thinking things. That what is most important about us, what shapes our identity, what gives us purpose and value is not something that's external. And this, we talked about this last week. It's not something that's external to us. So it's not God. It's not our family. It's not our nation. It's not even nature that defines us. It's, it's what happens inside. It's the psychological self that is primary and ultimate. And this is how we get to things like my truth and um, and it's my purpose, and it's my wants, and it's even the gender that I choose is because we think what is most important about ourselves is what we think. But what he's saying here is what defines and changes us is not what we think, but what we love. What we love is the most important thing about us. That is actually at the core of who we are. There's a secular psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, in his book, The Righteous Mind, He says our intuition and emotions, so our hearts, the things that we love, are primary and our reason is secondary. So we don't come to our beliefs and desires and intuitions through reasoning. In fact, we have those things primary and then we use our reasoning in order to justify them. And so he says it's kind of like this, it's our conscious minds are a lot like a White House press secretary, always having to explain and defend actions even when they don't make sense. He says, even those who have the higher IQ, they're no better at identifying objective truth than anybody else. They're just better at convincing people of their opinions. And so here's, here's kind of the takeaway, is the center of the human person is not the mind, but the heart. This is the center of who you are. This, what happens within your heart really defines and drives you. It's your desires, your cravings, your longings. And so if you want to change, if you want to experience this new freedom, this new identity in Christ, it's not by getting more information. It's not by changing your mind. And that's great. If you know me, I love philosophy. I love theology. I love science. I love all that stuff. But that's not what ultimately is going to change you. What is going to have to change is not your mind, but your heart. It's not what you think, but what you love. So here's the question. How do we change what we love? Like, is that even possible? Because a popular conception of love in our culture is that love is something that happens to us, right? Like, think about the phrase that we use, well, we fall in love. It's like I'm walking all of a sudden, all of a sudden it hits me, I've fallen in love, and then somehow I woke up one day and we fell out of love. It's this mystical experience, something that happens to us, something that we don't have control over. But what if love is something that we actually can shape and decide, Think about the implications of this. If love is something that we can shape and decide what we love. So uh, many psychologists, I think it began with Freud, said, uh, think of the human mind as like a three-tier system. So on the first or on the bottom level, that first tier is the unconscious mind. We call this human nature. It's things that are hardwired into us, things that that we don't think about, that we're unaware of, things that just happen kind of operating in the background of our life. So for example, you're doing things right now that you're doing unconsciously that your mind's taking care of, like breathing. You're breathing. You haven't thought about breathing until I just said that. (laughs) Now all of a sudden you're like, how do I breathe? This is weird. (laughs) 
I don't even know. Is this, am I doing it right? <laughs> right, but those are one of the things that you do. You didn't, you didn't wake up in the morning and go, and breathe. Okay, and, I mean, maybe you did if you have kids, but like, okay, and breathe, right? No, it just, it's something that happens, right? It, it's something that happens un, unconscious, hardwired into you. But then you have that next tier, and we can call that the subconscious or second nature. And it's a lot like human nature in that it operates in the background. We're not aware of what's taking place, but it's not hardwired. It's something that we have learned or acquired over time. Sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's unintentional. And oftentimes we call these things habits. And so you can have habits that are are actions. So for example, somebody, you or someone else, drove you to church this morning. They did that, not consciously, where they went, okay, must turn key clockwise, must put put on foot, must accelerate now. If they did that, don't drive with them. That's dangerous. Because it's become a habit. They're able to do this without even thinking about it anymore. And you have different habits. Maybe you're a golfer, and so swinging a golf club. My kids were in baseball yesterday, and it's interesting watching the youngest one who's still trying to learn kind of the game and how to throw and how to hit and all that, and he's just very intentional about trying to remember. And then the older one who's been playing for a while, it's now happening as a habit. It's a subconscious thing where he throws the ball. He's not thinking about how do I throw the ball? How am I supposed to aim? He goes, where's the play at? Where do I need to throw it to? Because it's become, become a habit. And all of us have different habits that we've gotten over time. This also applies to our attitudes. Some of us just have this disposition towards the world where we're either optimistic, pessimistic, we have a victim mentality, we're just apathetic about everything. It's a habit, the attitude is a habit that we've learned over time. We've practiced these things so often that we don't even realize we're doing it anymore. And then that final level is that that conscious level where we're intentionally thinking about things and we're aware of what we are thinking about. And so the picture is our minds are kind of like a giant iceberg. And you have above the, the surface, that's the conscious level. And the estimates are between 10 and 5% of what our mind is doing is happening consciously. Everything else is underneath the surface. It's either happening on a subconscious or an unconscious level. Now, here's what this means. It means that... Um, this means that this is, this is a way in which we've formed our love. So uh, let me give you an example. Um, think about something that you love. Think about something that you love. So uh, I, I, for some reason in my mind, I know we were at baseball all day, so maybe this is why it popped into my mind, is there's people at our church, even on our staff, who love the Dodgers. You might be an Angels fan. You might be a football fan. You might be whatever. Pick your thing, your hobby, your whatever, where you just, you love it. Uh, I mean, and not just like like it, like I'm talking love it as in like multiple people in your family have an LA Dodgers tattoo kind of love. <laughs> like that kind of love, that kind of intensity, right? It is just, she, it, one of the people I was thinking of, I told her this morning, I said, hey, you know, she said, don't forget to tell them we bleed blue in this house. And I was like, okay, <laughs> whatever. Um, okay, so that's the kind of love. Now let's think about how do we come to love something? Is it through a conscious choice that we have decided to love the Dodgers? Like we just looked at it and we analyzed and we thought about this thing. We thought, okay, I'm going to learn to love baseball and the Dodgers. And so every day I get up and I go, all right, Dodgers, I love you. Okay, I'm going to love you more today and I'm going to love you more tomorrow. And no, nobody's consciously come to love things like that, whether it's boating or whether it's the Dodgers. That's not how, how love happens. It's not this conscious choice that we make. 
Okay, well, were you born loving the Dodgers? Like, did you come out of the womb and you just went, who's playing today? Where are we at? Who's up? What's the roster looking like? No, nobody does. It's not, it's not a, on a natural kind of biological level that you have to love the Dodgers. Like, it, it, like breathing where I go, look, if I don't love the Dodgers, I'll die of a broken heart. It's just who I am. I can't help myself. Okay, so it doesn't happen on that kind of human nature level, but it doesn't just seem to be a conscious choice. Then that leaves us with something right in that subconscious area, that level two, that second nature, is it probably looks something more like, well, my parents loved the Dodgers, and we had all the gear around the house, and as a family, we would go to the game. Some of my fondest memories are there, and and so as I got older, I started following them, and then I started going to the games, and so, I don't know, it's just become a part of me. See, what happened was, your love was shaped more by your habits than your conscious choices. Is that love that you have for the Dodgers, for your boat, for your whatever, that happened through habits over time. And we're being shaped and formed all the time to love certain things. We just don't really realize it. So what are the two things that Americans love the most? Self and stuff. Those are our two favorite things. We love self and we love stuff. Last week we talked about how much we love ourselves. And if you doubt how much we love stuff, we have entire television shows dedicated to people who are drowning in their stuff. We love stuff. And so how did we become people who are narcissistic consumers? How did that happen? How did we have a nation full of people like that? Well, is it because it's just fundamental to who we are? It's at a basic level, this is, we just couldn't help it? Well, no, because there's been lots of cultures throughout human history and none of them were like this. So that doesn't seem to make sense. Was there like a rational argument that all of us started to buy into and believe where they said, okay, the point of life, the way that you're going to be most happy is if you make your center, the center of the universe yourself and you accumulate more things as you live. No, because all of us, if someone made that argument, we would go, well, that's not true. That's not the point of life. That's not going to make me happy. I don't No, No one thinks that. And yet all of us have bought into it. How did that happen? The way that it happened is we have a culture that continues to sell us a certain narrative about life. This is what the good life looks like. And then we've practiced things that become habits that reinforce this narrative. So let me give you a little example. This thing that I have right here, maybe you have one as well. They used to call them smartphones. I think we just call them phones now. In fact, um, I don't even think they really allow you to have an option of another kind of phone anymore because I tried about a handful of years ago. I said, I'm done with this thing. And so I went in to go get a flip phone and they wanted to charge me more for the flip phone than they did this. It's a conspiracy, okay? So this is, for many of us, a practice which has become a habit. So uh, think about what is the, I did a little research. Average time that we spend on, Average American spends three and a half to five and a half hours a day looking at this. If you're Gen Z, triple it. <laughs> a third of our waking hours is now spent looking at this thing, shopping and social media, games, entertainment, texting. Ironically, everything except for actually talking on the phone, this is, is what we do with this. <laughs> now, what is the narrative 
Or what narrative is this habit teaching us? So every time we engage in the habit of swiping and looking, what narrative are we buying into? Well, it's the narrative that I am the center of the universe. I can have what I want, when I want, whenever I want it. If I want a good or a service, all I have to do is simply tap. And I can avoid anything that I dislike or anyone that I don't want to hear from. It's teaching me to be a narcissistic consumer. Think about in the past. Not even kings had the ability that we have. I mean, at best, they could snap their fingers, say the word, and in a couple weeks, maybe they'd have what they really wanted. What do we do? We don't even have to say that. We just go, bink, thanks, Amazon. (laughs) Not beer till tomorrow? How dare you? (laughs) So this habit... By the way, it is a habit because the average person looks at their phone 96 times a day. You got to imagine that most of that is a subconscious habit. You do it. I do it constantly. I'm always like, did I look at my phone? I don't even remember looking at my phone. It's like an extension of me. What do I do without it? Right? Have you ever got, have you ever left your house without your phone? Oh my gosh. I just, I have like a panic attack. I'm just like, oh my, am I me? Who am I? I'm lost. Existential crisis is a whole thing. So. But here's, here, here's kind of the, the bottom line. Being on your phone, just like anything, what you are doing is doing something to you. Everything. Everything that you do is doing something to you. Whether it's on your phone, whether it's watching TV, it's dinner with your family, being at church, everything that you do is shaping something in you. And it's shaping the things that you love. And so here's the logic. What you practice constantly being on your phone, eventually becomes a habit. I now check it without even thinking about it. And our habits shape what we love. This tells me to love me and stuff. Now Paul goes and he adds a whole other theological level to this. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. This word here, uh, evil desires, is an inordinate desire. So it's loving something too much. It's almost like an addiction. So it's taking something that is good and then and, and putting too much worth and value in this thing. So, so a classic example would be something like, should I love my job? Yes. Should I love my spouse? Yes. Should I love my job more than my spouse? No. Why? Well, it's an inordinate desire. It's a, it's a, it's a love that's out of order. That's what he's talking about here is it's not just about loving things that you shouldn't love and he lists all these sins. It's about loving things too much and in, 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 uh, in out of order. And so follow Paul's logic. What you practice eventually becomes a habit. Our habits are what shape our loves and then what we love most becomes what we worship. And so you can draw a, a line between what we do, our, our daily practices, and what we worship. Because we like to think of, well, what I worship is what I say I worship, what I think I worship. And he says, no, no, no. What you worship is what you practice. And what you practice eventually becomes what you worship. Now, there's some good news in all of this. This means that if we're intentional, we can direct and shape what we love. That, yes, we can't choose directly what we're going to love, but we're also, um, uh, we're not powerless to, to our loves, 
that there is something that we can do. We can shape the habits and direct our loves. So he says, do two things. He says, put them to death, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. So first thing is you've got you've to get rid of those disoriented loves. You've got to remove them from your life. And so for some of us, it's obvious. I say that and you go, oh, I know it's this thing. It's this addiction. It's just, I, know, I know it's not what God wants for me. I know it's just pulling me away from him. And so it's obvious. We go, okay, that's a habit that I now need to rid myself of. But for others of us, it's not necessarily like where he talks about these evil desires, which is a bad thing. Maybe it's a good thing, but we've loved it out of order. We've loved it too much. We've made it too much of a priority. Or it could even be things that on the surface are not bad things. They are, they're neutral, maybe even good things, but they're creating a habit that the narrative is pulling us away from Christ. So here, here's what I mean. Yesterday, I got up and my whole family got up at uh, 6.30 on a Saturday because we had a very full schedule. Multiple baseball games and then we had the lunch you're going to and then we get to read for church and we had to be at church at a certain hour and then we have meetings afterward. And, and so I finally settled down at about 10.30, 11 o'clock last night. Never stopping. And, and this is not... Um, this is not irregular for me or maybe even for you, is we live these busy, frantic, chaotic lives. So that has become a habit of just go, 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 go. What is the narrative behind the habit? Like, what am I believing about the good life that pushes me to do those things? That if I'm busy, I'm important? That life is about self-fulfillment? That I must do all that I can here and now? What is the narrative that I've bought into that allows me to develop these kinds of habits? He says, I've got to put those things to death. Now, the words that he used here is intentionally violent words. And one of the commentaries I read, I said, think of it like this. Think of it like a person who works in a machine shop and one day their fingers get stuck in the machine and it starts slowly pulling them inward. What they would have to do is they would have to get their pocket knife out and cut off each of the fingers so that they can save the rest of their body. He said, that's what we have to do with these these inordinate desires, these things that are pulling us away from Christ. As he says, we have to be ruthless. We have to cut these things out of our life. We can't just play with it. We can't just say, well, just like he says, no, no, get them out. Get all of them out. Don't allow any of them to have a foothold in your life because they will continue to pull you away. And he also says, we have to set our heart and mind on things above. So it's not just enough to look in and to recognize that we have the things in the center of our life that are unhealthy that we have to not only take them out, but we have to replace them. <clears throat> Side note, I didn't say this at the other services, but I was thinking about this, is uh, this is why I think modern psychology to some extent doesn't work. And what I don't mean is it's, it's bunk. It's, no, no, no. What I mean is it's really good at helping you identify the unhealthy habits at the center of your life. So it could be like, oh man, I got this relationship and it's just become part of my identity and it's become toxic or I've got this, whatever. And so what they do is they help you identify, oh, this needs to be removed from your life. Here's the problem for the most part is they don't have anything to replace it with. Oh, you've got this toxic relationship, so we need to remove this out of there. We need to make this out. Okay, but what are you gonna replace it with? My job? Another relationship? What? See, that's why Paul comes along and he says, there can only be one thing that you replace it with that's got to be Christ. Christ has to be in you and then you will be in Christ. And so he says, we need to set our heart and mind on things above. It's not enough to stop doing those habits or to eliminate them. You have to replace them with new habits. So think about what we're doing right now. What we're doing right now, and this is why we always tell you guys, hey, be here every weekend, be here every weekend, be here every weekend. It's because through the practice of being here every weekend, we've developed a habit. 
And the habit is that, and, and think about what happens here, is what we're doing is we're practicing the Christian life um, in, in one day. What I mean by that is we come together, we have community, we connect with other believers, we worship, we read the scriptures, and then we go out and we hope to spread God's love to other people. That's the Christian life as a whole in one, in one weekend, in just a few hours, because we're practicing the habits of the Christian life here on the weekends. So we have to develop other habits that are going to help us not, um, that are going to help us find this identity or, or, or excuse me, realize this identity that we have in Jesus. So here's the summary. You are what you love. Your loves are shaped by your habits. Your habits are based on a narrative about God, yourself, and the world, and what is a good life. So let's talk about your habits real quick. What is your spending habits look like? Like when you get money in, where does that money go? You, you have a habit. You do something with it, right? Maybe it's save it. Maybe it's spend it. Maybe it's whatever. But my guess is that the habit that you have is using your money for yourself. And so you've bought into this idea of maybe money will make you happy or if you don't take care of yourself, nobody will. God can't be trusted with this. Whatever it is, that habit reflects something. Behind, there's a narrative behind that habit. What we have to do is we have to have this Christian counterformation of tithing and giving. It, it, honestly, like the more I learn about our like humanity and the more I learn about the scripture, I just go, wow, the Bible knows so much about us. Like it's almost as if the Bible knew and God knew like, hey, you're going to be formed by your habits. And so I'm going to give you these counter habits for you to do so that there can be a counter reformation that takes place in your, in your heart. And so you're going to want to spend all your money on you. But what I'm going to say is every time you get money, the first thing I want you to do is make a habit of giving it away. Because that's going to change your heart. And it's going to change your loves. What Jesus said is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I have misread that verse up until today. Because listen, listen what he says here. For where your treasure is, there, I always thought it was the other way around. Wherever your heart is is where you're going to spend your money. That's true, but that's not what he says here. What he says here is where your treasure is, there your heart will be. He says where you spend your money, the habit of where you place your money is going to shape your, hearts and what you, your heart and what you love. That's completely different than I understood it. Because I hear people all the time go, hey, you know what? The Bible says I got to be a cheerful giver, and you know what? I'm just not happy about it, so <laughs> sorry, I'm not giving. <laughs> that's not what he says. That's not what he says. He says, if you want to be cheerful, then you should give. Because the, the practice proceeds the position of your heart. So if you want to be a cheerful person, especially when it comes to your finances, then develop the habit of being generous. I mean, we understand this. Think about it. If we apply this idea of, well, I've got to feel it first before I do it. It's like, okay, well, when would I work out then? Never, right? Have you ever, I mean, have you ever just woken up and going, man, I could, go for, well, I could go for a good run today and hoping to eat just a salad? No. I've heard you can get there. You can have that kind of life, but you know what? It takes a while. It takes a, a lot of practices that become habits for you to enjoy those things. I pray one day maybe I'll be there. What about your time habits? Are you, so the, uh, I do this on a regular basis. I'll be driving in my car and I will just observe 
kind of my body, and it will just be so tense. I'm just like this, driving, you know? And there's nothing going on. You know, I'm just like this. Just, this is how I'm doing life. I'm like, why am I like this right now? Why are you doing this? And it's like, well, because I've got things to do. I've got a never-ending to-do list that I must do. And if, okay, wait, wait, hold on. So you have developed this habit of constantly having to be doing and working and accomplishing. What's the narrative behind that? The narrative behind that is you are what you do. You're only valuable if you're successful. Do I believe that's true? No. Well, then why, why do I live like that's true? Oh, because it... I've developed that's this habit. Or maybe you're like us yesterday as a family where we're running around constantly. We have so many things to do. We have people to see. We've got, and it's just life is busy and that's why I can't really make it to church and that's why I can't really focus on the things that I want to. Is because, well, okay, that's a habit. And what's the narrative behind the habit? Well, life is about fun. Life is about pleasure. I must get in the most I can in this short life. I, what's the narrative? I, I don't know what it is. You have to answer that question. What's the narrative that you've bought into that now has created this sort of ha- habitual lifestyle? This is why God comes along and he says, at the very beginning, I want you to practice the Sabbath. I want you to take an entire day off and you can't do anything. You can come, you worship me, you pray, that's it. Why would he tell us to develop that kind of habit? Well, because it combats the, the habit of I, I am what I do. I find my value in what do I accomplish. I must do everything that I can here and now. He said, nope, none of that is true. And so I'm going to help you develop a habit, the Sabbath, that counters that narrative. Why does he command us to be here on a, a weekly basis? We're supposed to gather weekly. Why? Why doesn't he say gather when you need to? Gather when you feel like it. Because he's creating us a habit that we're dependent upon one another, that we're going to do life together, that life is not about uh, what I do, what I accomplish, all the things I get to experience. This is the primary purpose of my life. And so he says, create a habit in which you are here weekly. What about attitudinal habits? I'm anxious. I'm angry. Maybe even I'm, I'm apathetic. Somewhere in there, those, those attitudes have bought into a false narrative about how the world should work, how people should treat you. Maybe the amount of control that you should have over your life. And that's why he says, okay, I want you to come and spend time with me. Make it a habit for us to spend time together in the, the scriptures and in prayer so that you can realign your lives, your attitudes to mine. Your life is not about you, it's about me. And that's going to take a, a daily reminder, a habit to get that perspective. And so here's the challenge. Is we do have control o- over a segment of our mind. This, this conscious level. And we can use that in order to develop some different habits in our lives. So the first thing you gotta do is you gotta evaluate, okay, so what are the habits that I've bought into? Or what are the habits that, that I do without even thinking? So for me, the most shocking one as I was observing myself this week and looking at my different habits was the amount of just mind-numbing time I spend scrolling through YouTube. I'm just like, Oh, that's a cool car. Oh, that's a photo. Just, just drool. Just, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, I should get one. Of, I wish I could have one of those. Oh, that's funny. Ah, <laughs> cats. You know, like, it just, whatever. And I've realized that habit is reflective of a narrative I've, I bought into. Your life should be about entertainment. You should never be bored. 
You should always be consuming, whether it's information, whether it's entertainment, whatever. And so I've had to now start to develop a counter habit to that. Okay, actually what I need to do is I need to spend some time in silence and solitude. And instead of thinking about all the things that I would like, how about I reflect on all the things that God has given me instead? Because what is that going to produce in me? Which one of those is going to get me closer to um, who I am in Christ? See, it's about developing these counter habits in order to shape the loves that we have. So, question is, what do you love? What do you love? If you were to answer that question, what would your top three things be? The scary thing is you may not actually know what you love. You might think that you love something, but your habits would say otherwise. So here's, I think, maybe a better question, or at least a more productive one, is what do you want to love? What do you want to love? If it is Jesus, and you say, I want to love him above all else, then the follow-up is, okay, then what kind of habits are you developing in order to shape that love towards him? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for just the wisdom that we find in the scriptures. Um, the more that I understand and, and dig into your word, the more that I realize that you have such incredible insight into our hearts, into who we are. And we're always trying to catch up and we're always trying to understand ourselves. And yet, if we would just simply look to you, our creator, you've already told us who we are and, and how to live that life in this identity. And so, Lord, I just pray that as we walk out, we would walk out with maybe a, a, new, a new mission for the different practices and habits in our life, Lord God. Lord, I think for most of us, we walk in here and we really truly wanna love you more. We wanna find this identity uh, being in you. We wanna realize it, we wanna experience it. And yet there are so many things that are distracting us and pointing us in, in opposing directions. And so Lord, help us to become people who practice. And eventually those practices become habits and those habits shapes our love and our love eventually becomes a worship of you. Lord, we thank you. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right. Will you guys stand with me? Thank you so much for being here this week. And please grab, if there's any Easter signs left, we want to make sure those all go out into the community. Other than that, we'll see you next week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.